It's great to be with you. Uh, if you have a, a Bible with you today or a Bible app, you can turn uh, to Genesis 37. Today, if you were in the Sunday School class, you know that we started the course Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The basic premise of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is you cannot be spiritually healthy unless you are emotionally healthy. Through this eight-week course, we will learn to talk more directly about our emotions with one another. Um, you, can, you can turn back to the first screen. <clears throat> there you go. Uh, I, can't, I don't think I'll be able to get through this sermon effectively unless I talk about uh, what I call sacred tensions. Uh, it's been kind of a, one of my core values in, in my life for a long time, especially as an adult. It's pretty easy to understand, I think. We often think of ter- in life in terms of black and white, right and wrong. But often, and there are certain things that are just clearly right. Jesus is Lord. Amen? The scriptures are his word. There is no counterpart that needs to be held in tension with those things. Amen? But for most of life, it's not black or white. It's sacred tensions. It's thrive, what I call thriving in the gray of these tensions that exist. You have this idea. You have another idea that seems like a, almost like a polar opposite. What can we learn by holding them in tension with one another and thriving in the gray? That's what I mean by sacred tensions, and I'll come back to that later in the sermon. As I was preparing for this uh, sermon, I, um, by the way, we're going to be talking about Jacob. I just thought, who is the most emotionally unhealthy person in scriptures? And Jacob popped into my mind. Um, So we're going to talk a lot about the problems that exist in his family because of his own sin. But this reminded me of a phone conversation I had with my Uncle Bill Holloway. He was upset with me on the phone. He was upset not only with me, but my side of the family. He said, you know, you're always, you're, your family is always distancing, distancing yourself from us. Your family has always believed that you were too good for us. Uh, Tim, you often feel that way, and you often withdraw from us. Now, how do you think I'm going to respond to that? I felt immediately judged. I felt immediately Um, pride rise up within me. I felt defensive. I I don't think that was true, but that's how my Uncle Bill felt, and he was more than glad to share with me on that day. So I said, well, Bill, if we're going to have an honest conversation, let's have an honest conversation. Um, And I was just about in this conversation to touch the third rail of my family, I was about to criticize my grandmother, Holloway, Bill's mother. A third rail, you just didn't do it. She was a saint. There was nothing wrong with with Nan. I called her Nan. I want to be very careful about this as I share about my own family. I want to both be honest about my grandmother, Holloway, but I also want to honor her. Um, The honest part, my grandmother, Holloway, grew up in deep poverty rural poverty. She grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, literally. Here were the tracks. My grandmother's house was right there. 
wrong side of Belfont, wrong neighborhood. That was where she grew up and where my, my father grew up. She had six children, five different fathers, most of whom we never even knew. And to be honest with you, growing up, I didn't think a thing about that. It didn't bother me. It just was the way it is. As I grew to be an adult, I understood that that was not a normal part of a lot of people's lives, but it was for us. Now, by the time I grew up, my grandmother, Holloway, had become older, more stable, but there was still dysfunction in the family, and I could feel it. And at times, in all honesty, I loved her very much, but I found it hard to be in her home. So Bill, my Uncle Bill, was correct. I often did prefer to be with my other grandmother, my grandmother Schumacher, my mother's mother. She, was, she grew up in a more stable home. She was more stable, and I could feel it as a kid. But here's the honor part. And this is one of the things that I don't think my Uncle Bill really understood in the day that we were having that disagreement. I loved both of my grandmothers with a deep affection, including my grandmother Holloway. Especially now as an adult, now that I have a fuller appreciation of all the hardships my grandmother Holloway went through. You know, we rarely have these kind of conversations, do we? In the family, in the church family, we rarely have these kind of honest conversations with one another about our dysfunction, about our family sin, our church family sin. Emotionally healthy spirituality is about having those types of conversations, about how we honestly feel. Bill and I had a great conversation. He knows the Lord. We worked it out. I was, had to examine some things that were in my own heart. And Bill didn't get away. I didn't let Bill get away either. He had to look at some things going on in his life. So let's stand. We're going to turn to Genesis 37. As I said, we'll be looking at uh, Jacob and his families, his family structure. And the way I want to do this, I will read the first screen, and then when the second screen comes up, we'll read it together, and then we'll go back and forth like that, okay? So let me start with this screen. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now together. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, 
his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray together. Lord, if this is your time to meet with us and share what is on your heart, this is not my time. If these are only going to be my words, uh, Lord, please have mercy. We ask that you would fill all of us with your Holy Spirit, me that I may preach, the people in this church that they may hear what you have to tell us this day. For we long to know what is on your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main idea I want to get uh, through today in this sermon is that God is the redeemer of our bad bloodlines, the bad blood in our families, our family dysfunction and sin. God is the redeemer of all of our bad bloodlines. The first point, verses 1 through 2, let's look at Jacob's family dysfunction. There's this marker in in the beginning of verse 2. It says, these are the generations of. And you see that throughout the book of Genesis. It's a marker that says there's about to be something new. These are the generations of Jacob. These are, this is a new whole idea. There's a whole new family coming into the book of Genesis. The second part of verse 2 brings up this family tension immediately. They're out in the field and it mentions Bilhah, and Zilpah. Joseph's dad, Jacob, had four wives, Rachel and Leah, Bilhah and Zilpah. Bilhah was Rachel's servant, and Zilpah was Leah's servant, both given to them by their father, Laban, at their wedding. So automatically, Genesis, our scripture for today, is highlighting the, the rivalry that be, began and existed between Leah and her, and, and her sister, Rachel. You see, Jacob loved Rachel and wanted to marry her. And he goes to her father, Laban, and asks for her hand in marriage. And Laban says, well, I'll give you your hand in marriage, but you'll have to work for seven years. Jacob loved her so much that he did that. And when it was time to get married, this crazy part of the story, Jacob ends up marrying Leah instead of Rachel. You say, now how can that be? Well, you got to read the story. I can't get into all of it, but it's this crazy part of the story. Uh, Jacob was tricked into marrying his, her sister Leah instead of Rachel. And so Laban's like, hey, look, Laban's a con artist. He's like, I, I, I'll be more than glad to give you Rachel too, but you'll have to work another seven years. So he gets married to Rachel, works another se- seven years. So that's two wives so far. Genesis 29, 29 through 31 says this, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel, to be her servant, time of the wedding. So he had to work another seven years for, uh, for Rachel. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah begins to have children. In fact, she has four sons. And I'm going to try to diagram this out for you, but it gets really complicated very fast. Um, And every time Leah bears a son, she thinks to herself, now Jacob will love me. But he doesn't. And the rivalry heats up. And Rachel becomes envious of Leah because she can't have children. So what does she do? 
she gives her servant Bilhah as a wife to Jacob, and they have two sons. Leah's no longer bearing children at this point, so she's starting to get jealous and envious, and so she gives her servant Zilpah as a wife to Jacob. They have two sons. And then Leah has three more children, and then Rachel finally has two sons, one of which is Joseph that we're talking about in today's sermon. I think I did that right. That's crazy. What we have here is a full-blown breeding competition between sisters. Now, how crazy is that? You heard the saying, happy wife, happy life. But what's the saying when there's four wives? Unhappy wives, unhappy lives, yes, absolutely. This cra crazy rivalry, this family dysfunction and sin. And you know what? The Bible doesn't hide any of it. The Bible does not hide any of it. So the question, it begs the question, why do we hide our family dysfunction so much? If the Bible doesn't do it, why do we? Now, this is the family. This is the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the line through which the Messiah would come. This is the family. This is the family. Are we all right there? All right. All right, good. This is the family by which all families of the earth will be blessed. The family. And it is crazy dysfunctional. Crazy with sin. Next point I want to make. Will Jacob ever learn? Will we ever learn? Believe it or not, the story gets even crazier because Jacob loves Joseph more than any of his other brothers. And Jacob should know better. Why do I say that? J Genesis 25, 29. Isaac loved Esau but he, because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So Jacob's father, Isaac, preferred Esau because he went out hunting and he would bring him back all this really tasty food. But their, their mother, Rebekah, loved Jacob. Favoritism. And in our story, the sign of favoritism is the robe of many colors that, that uh, Jacob gives to Joseph, the famous, amazing, technicolor dream coat. It was a tunic. It was a robe. It was an outer garment. It was, it, most of them were kind of looked like the desert. They, they were kind of boring. But this one had all these colors. Now, how do you think, if, how are you going to feel when you're the brothers? And your brother gets this amazing, technicolor dream coat. And you get nothing, obviously very jealous. I have a, a quote from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality for you. Even though we, this is Pete Scazzaro and his wife Jerry, who wrote the book and, and developed the course. Even though we have been committed Christians for almost 20 years, our ways of relating mirrored much more a family of origin than the way God intended for his new family in Christ. Let me repeat it. It's worth repeating. Even though we had been committed Christians for almost 20 years, our ways of relating mirrored much more our family of origin than the way of God intended for this new family in Christ. That is the same for Jacob. Jacob was relating much more out of his family dysfunction than anything that God intended for he and his family. Amen? Isn't that how we are? I love Jacob. He is my hero. 
he's such a deceiver. He's such a liar. That's not why he's my hero. But he's just so honest. He's so out there. He's so, he's so dysfunctional. He is a perfect candidate for the de deliverance of God. Amen? And he shows us just how much we are the same. Um, sounds to me like Jacob and his family needed a real heavy dose of emotionally healthy spirituality. Now, I say that, you, we understand that emotionally healthy spirituality is not the be-all. This course is not the be-all and end-all of all things. Jesus Christ is the be-all and end-all of all things. But we really feel as the leadership of this church that this course would be helpful. It would have been helpful to Jacob and his family if they could just talk about what was so evident in their family, all the sin and dysfunction. And so in the midst of all of this craziness, Jacob starts having these dreams. Now think about this for a second. Jacob is young, he is naive, and he is favored. That is a deadly combination. So he starts sharing these dreams with his brother. Not a very wise thing to do, but this is the first dream. And the first dream says, there's these stalks. I think they're like wheat. And you, you grab a bunch of stalks and you wrap them together, it's a sheaf. And his sheaf rises up, and then all of his brother's sheaf start bowing down to him. And he has another dream, and he shares it with his brothers, and this time his father, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, I wonder who that was, started bowing down to him. And he told it to his father, and his father's upset with him. He's like, you're telling me that your mother and your father and your, and your brothers were going to bow down to you? Is that what you're telling me? He's very upset. Now, it's like this. How would you feel if I said to you, I came, I'm in a sermon, and I said, okay, people, I had a dream. And I had a dream that while I was preaching, all these chairs, see all these beautiful new chairs, they all started bowing down to me. Now, how would you, how'd you feel about that? I don't think you would be very happy with me. I think you would think I'm going a little nuts. Um, having, you would say, what gives you a right to even say that, to share that in our presence? But this is what Jacob was doing. And so they, it provokes all this jealousy in them that was existing, but now it comes to a head, and they decide to kill Joseph. And if it wasn't for the brother Reuben to step in and said, no, we're not going to kill him, we need to think of something different. They throw him in a pit. What are we going to do with Joseph? They decide to sell him. Now listen to this. They decide, instead of killing him, to sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites who eventually took him to Egypt and gave him over to the Egyptians. How nutty is that? He can barely take it in. So they take this wonderful robe of many colors and they drench it in blood. They show it to their father, Jacob. And Jacob thinks he's been killed by a wild animal, that he's dead. And he goes into this mourning. And like I said, this eventually leads Joseph to Egypt. Bad gets worse. He's a falsely accused and thrown into prison, left to rot there. Then all of a sudden, Pharaoh starts having these dreams. And in the story, he comes to interpret those dreams. I'll talk about that in a second. But just imagine for one second the emotions that Joseph was experiencing. Pride, right off the bat, he's the favored son. Abandonment, being thrown into a pit. Fear at being sold into slavery, confusion, frustration, anger, panic. And that's just to name a few. 
But as we noticed in the story, and we get hints of it right in verse 11, there's a redeemer for this family. But his father, he, his father heard these dreams. And it says, but his father kept these sayings in his mind. See, Jacob had learned a lot by walking with the Lord, by wrestling with the Lord, by encountering God on his terms and not on Jacob's terms. Jacob knew enough about God to know that there was always something up with God. There may be this, there may be this dream, there may be this suffering, but God is up to something. There is more to the story than meets the eyes, and Jacob knew it. But what does that really mean in the midst of all this craziness? So Jacob's thrown into prison. Pharaoh starts having these dreams, and I can't really tell you the dreams for sake of time, but one of the, what Joseph is brought out of prison, brought before Pharaoh, and his interpretation of the dreams are this. There will be seven years of plenty. There'll be seven years of great harvest. And then there will be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's like, what should we do? And Joseph's like, during those years of great harvest, you should start storing harvest, and then you'll have enough when it comes to the famine. And you, um, <clears throat> you will have more than enough to give out to the kingdom. Pharaoh thinks this is a great idea. So he takes him out of prison and makes him second in command. Joseph becomes the governor of all of Egypt, and he is in charge of collecting and storing the grain of harvest. So let's... Uh, <clears throat> Let's look at Genesis 42, and I think we have a slide there. Good. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at another? So obviously the famine had made its way all the, all the way to Jacob and his family in Canaan. He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of his Joseph's brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. The ten brothers going where now Joseph is in charge. And they had sold him off to slavery and completely forgot about him. Verses 6 through 7, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, listen, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. His dreams came true, because unlike my dream, the chairs bowing, his dreams were from God, and they came true. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Where do you come from, he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. <clears throat> the culmination of the story is this. Joseph, after years of affliction, after years of abuse, after years of false accusations, after years of imprisonment, he becomes the family redeemer. He becomes the one pointing us to Jesus Christ. Gen Genesis 45. He, now, he, the, his, um, in the story, and I'm, I am shrinking this story way down, obviously. I would encourage you to read it or read it again. Now they know that it's Joseph, and he's alive, and he's over in charge of Egypt. And he says to them, And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, was, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt 
And then he says these famous things, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am, in the place, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph becomes the family redeemer. He becomes the redeemer of all of Egypt. Joseph becomes the one who points us to Jesus. Jesus is the healer, the redeemer of all of our family bloodlines, all of our bad blood in our family. By shedding his own blood on the cross, he creates a whole new bloodline. He creates a whole new holy bloodline that leads us all the way to the Father. A whole new family. Out with the old bad blood, out with the dysfunction and the sin, in with the holy and the new. God is always for us, even in the most difficult of times. Now here's, I told you I was going to tell you about sacred tensions again. Here it is. Sovereignty, the God's sovereignty on one side, our suffering and evil on the other. How do, in the world do we keep these things in tension with one another? It's, it's a challenge. Now this is sovereignty of God is the theological term for God is in control of all things. And he will always bring about what is good for those who love him and called, are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. But what sovereignty does not mean is this. It does not mean going to the most horrific, traumatic events in human history and saying, oh well, God's in charge. It doesn't mean going to the most horrific or traumatic events of our own lives and saying, it's okay, God's in control. That's ultimately true, but what, what does it feel like to be in that moment? What does it emo feel like to be emotionally healthy in the midst of all kinds of trauma and pain and suffering and evil? We are not meant to put just this band-aid of a scripture, like Romans 8, 28, upon our lives. We are meant to go to God and cry out. We are meant to go to God and say, what in the world are you doing? You promised me that you would work this for good. I am your child. Why in the world are you doing this? Sovereignty does not mean that we do not speak out against injustice in this world. It does not mean that we look at racism and say, oh, well, God's in charge. He will do, he will, it'll work out for good. It doesn't mean that we go to abortion and say it'll all work out towards good. It never means that. It means that we have to be emotionally healthy. To be emotionally healthy, we have to deal with difficult emotions. That is the reality. But there is still a sacred tension. God is still sovereign. And we must hold these things in sacred tension one another. And we must try. We must do our best, even if we can't do it perfectly, to thrive in the gray. Because God is still in charge of this world. And he is in charge of evil. He will bring it about for good. Trauma is not our ultimate identity. Suffering is not our ultimate identity. All the pain in the world, not our ultimate identity. But again, when we're in it, we better be able to express it, and we better be able to fight for people who are in the midst of deep trauma and pain. Amen? Amen. We need to fight and, and wrestle with this sacred tension. And the Lord, I, I went to uh, a counselor of types, and this woman, Sister Maria, said, I want you to focus on two things. I want you to focus on Jacob and the dream he had of the ladder. I'm like, cool, I can do that. And they said, I want you to focus on you, res uh, Jacob, wrestling with the angel. I'm like, nah. I've been focused. That's been my life passage for so long. And I'm like, I'm tired of it. 
I'm tired of, I'm tired of wrestling with God. I'm tired of him engaging me in ways that make no sense to me. I'm tired of him, of me praying for loved ones for years and years and years and him not doing anything about it. And what I feel God doing, I don't even know how to fully describe it, but he's, he's, he's coaxing me on. He's egging me on. He's like, we're going we're gonna to tangle. And I'm like, I'm not tangling with you. I'm going to go about my merry way. But God has a way of speaking gently to us when we need to speak gently to us. But he has a way of wrestling with us, and there's no doubt in my mind we're going to tangle. There's no doubt in my mind that I have ex to express things to God that I don't even know how to express. My anger, my frustration. I told you, I mean, most of you know this, my, my wife, we just had Amy's stepbrother die. That's three deaths in the family in 17 months. Enough is enough, God. Enough is enough. Her own mother died last summer unexpectedly of colon cancer. Enough is enough. How do we deal with these sacred tensions? I don't know. What I do know and what a friend said to me is that we must heroically step on the neck of our family sin patterns. We must heroically step on the neck of our family sin patterns. We must talk about them freely. We must come to people that we trust. In order to do so, we must slow down. We must learn to take better care of ourselves and maybe learn some new, more enjoyable, new, enjoyable ways of living our lives before God, slowing down, being playful in God's presence. What Neil Scazzaro and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality calls the contemplative traditions. I've been following contemplative traditions for years and years and years, and I can't tell you all the great things they've done in my life. So I have a list of some of the ones that have been really very effective in my life. The ones that we're encouraging, um, and I think we have a list of this, is that right? <clears throat> um, yeah, before that, this is, this is a question I do want to ask before we get into that. How is God redeeming your family bloodline? How is God redeeming your family bloodline? For me, it's the word ambivalence redeemed. Many of you know I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic. He's been 18 years sober, praise God, and making his way towards God. But growing up, he was an alcoholic, and it was, it was hard. And so I lived with ambivalence. Here it is again. One, one idea. I love my father. He's my father. I hate my father. I'm embarrassed of my father being an alcoholic. That was my life growing up. Now, you can imagine the damage that would do to a young man, being embarrassed of his father, but I love him. So I had to live with this tension of ambivalence. And I'm here to say that God redeemed it. It didn't happen right away. I had many, many heartaches. But now that I'm 55 years old, God has redeemed that ambivalence. And so I'm very comfortable with sacred tensions. I'm very, I just thought everybody was comfortable with it. But most people, a lot of people, want to keep things apart, black and white. I'm just very comfortable with tension. It makes me a very good associate pastor for you these days as we're going through all this crazy ambiguity of change. It makes me a very good associate pastor, the Pastor Larry, because I'm like, here's the tension that we have to deal with. That's how God redeemed a part of my bloodline. And now I have this amazing relationship with my father, because eventually he got clean. 
But some, not, all, not all alcoholics get clean, right? God could have easily changed that story. But I thank you. I'm thankful that he didn't. So we must take better care of ourselves. I have another quote for you from the first chapter. Self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others, the gift of me, the gift of ambivalence redeemed. I'm your pastor, one of them. The gift of sacred tensions, the gift of all these things. That's me, fearfully and wonderfully made. But all of you are the same way. All of you are being redeemed moment by moment in order to give your gifts to somebody else. But we need to take better care of ourselves because we're living in a very busy time. Self-care is not a selfish act. It's what it's called for. Now, like I said, the contemplative traditions. Sorry, Lee, I'm bouncing around. But these are the contemplative traditions that have been helpful to me. And the ones that we're going to uh, encourage today uh, in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course is Daily Office. Daily Office, we have a book day by day. It just leads you moment by moment. You pause twice a day. You read the lessons. You do the prayers. It's called the Daily Office. It's a way of just stopping and being with God throughout the day. The daily office has meant a big deal in my life. Sabbath rest. Just taking time every week to rest and not do anything. To be with God and your family and your friends. Sabbath rest. Here's one that may not be familiar to you, spiritual direction. A lot of these traditions, by the way, are outside of the Protestant traditions. But they're, they're deeply meaningful. Christians... Protestant Christians are not the only Christians on the face of the planet. I'm here to tell you, and I've learned a lot from them. Spiritual direction. I'm, I'm encouraged to tell you that starting next Thursday, I'm starting a two-year spiritual direction course to become a spiritual director. I've been wanting to do it since the 90s. People are saying, Tim, you should do this. You'd be a great spiritual director, but the time wasn't right. But now I start. Spiritual direction, what is it? I call spiritual directors holy listeners. They sit with you. They listen to your story, and they try to discern what God is doing. And they ask you all these questions. My current uh, spiritual director is Sister Maria. She's the one that start, runs the program in spiritual direction I'll be in. She tells these amazing stories, and then she'll say, I just want you to focus on wrestling with God. Oh, okay, Sister Maria, no problem. You know. So they're the holy listeners of the Christian community listening to our stories. Meditation. Uh, meditation. Um, there's all kinds of meditation, Christian meditation. Uh, the one that you're probably most familiar with as Protestants is meditating on Scripture, which is a wonderful thing to do. Let's keep up that tradition. But there's also other types of Christian meditation. And one that I became aware of because my counselor's like, I want you to learn how to do meditation. I'm like, all right. So she gave me a book, completely unhelpful. I didn't know how to do it. And then I won't get into the whole story. God led me to um, actually an app, and I started learning how to do meditation. Um, one of the most helpful things, by the way, I've ever done, and it's, fo it's fostered so much time and understanding of who I am. It it's helped my prayer life in immeasurable ways. It's an amazing thing to do, but it's, it's often outside of our scope, so it feels a little spooky to us. It feels a little foreign to us. I'm here to tell you it's one of the best things I've ever done. 
And so the, you can tell, you can see where we're kind of pushing you just a little bit. Learn some new traditions that may be outside of your own tradition. Retreats and solitude. I can give you, if you're interested, I can give you all kinds of information about where to take retreats. There's one right here, right out and near Rockledge. I go there on retreats all the time. I have my own cabin. I go on retreat. I was just there last week, two weeks ago. Uh, spiritual retreats and solitude. And then there's this one that I'm sure, prayer labyrinths. I had completely forgotten about it until this week. Let's go to the next slide. I'll show you one. Where I do a retreat at this place where they have these hermitage cabins, they have this prayer labyrinth. And um, I forgot how to do it. I only had done it once in my life. But some, for, for some reason, when I was in the midst of all the pressure of this sermon, I remember there was a prayer labyrinth over at the Medical Mission Sisters. And so I went there because I was completely out of my mind on Tuesday. Frustrated. I was exhausted. I was like, I just can't prep in the office anymore. i got to go. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And to the left and right are the prayer labyrinths. You probably can't see it too much. So I put one in the middle. And the middle represents God. And you just walk slowly and you pray. And it will turn you this way. It'll turn you that way. Sometimes for long stretches, sometimes short. It'll bring you close to God. It'll pull you away from God. And it's just kind of a representative of our lives, isn't it? And I was just prayerfully walking. And God was giving me all the sermon stuff right there. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was like, Lord, why aren't you giving my sermon? And he was give, he's like, well, I want you out in some nature. And I was there. And then this woman, T, in her 20s, came up and sat down right on one of the benches, and she was just watching me. She's like, I always wondered what these were. It's like, I see these nuns walking back and forth. She was in scrubs. She was obviously caretaker for one of the nuns. And at the end, I had a, uh, prayed for her and had a wonderful conversation with her. I, I Googled prayer labyrinths, and these articles pop up. Are they biblical? No, they're not biblical because they're never mentioned in the Bible. I'm going to be honest with you. We're going to be emotionally honest. I'm going to be emotionally honest with you. I hate, I'm, I have grown to hate that kind of Christianity. Always looking for something that's wrong with somebody else's tradition. I am all for biblical discernment, but prayer labyrinths, really? And so I was, I was in the middle, next slide. I got to the middle, got to God, and there uh, what is what happened. The sun literally shined through the trees on the middle of the circle when I was in the circle. And I was like, I just went like this. I didn't care that T was looking at me. I looked strange. I was just absorbing the glory of God. And the glory of God cast my shadow right to the ground. I think that's all the proof that you need that God was with me that day, right? All these traditions, let's be playful. Let's learn from other people. Let's not, we can, nothing wrong with biblical discernment, as I said, but there's so many Christian traditions. We encourage you to play around with some. We are on an emotionally healthy journey together. And we're a lot like Jacob. A lot of dysfunction in our lives. We have to be honest and talk about it. But more than anything, we have to be seeking Jesus Christ because he is the redeemer of any bad blood that currently exists in our family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come with us on this journey. Because unless it's your journey, it's not gonna, nothing good will happen. But with you, the redeemer of all bloodlines, all kinds of amazing things can happen. 
and we can become more emotionally healthy, more spiritually healthy. That's our desire. We put those desires before you and entrust them into your care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.